Anyways, if you're here for the first time, I'm sorry, because you're coming in at the close, the close of a series. This is actually week 16 of Living the Life and week number six of uh, Five Pillars of Church Life. So we're pretty deep into stuff, and you might feel a little bit lost, but I think there's enough standalone information and, uh, in this. I, I, I wish Bob Mears was here today. He, he would like some of the information I'm giving away, as we've had this discussion many times. Anyway, so far in giving a brief introductory overview, that's what we've been doing, of the fivefold ministry, Ascension Gifts of Christ, we've looked at, uh, so far, the apostle, the prophet, and the evangelist. Now, traditionally, at least within the structure and function of the mainline denominational churches of America and Western Europe, these three offices have been non-functional for the past 1,500 years. And the reins of the church have been left in the hands of the final two offices of shepherd or pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers have been pretty much running the church for the past 1,500 years. Now, in light of this, we could conclude that the church has either been functioning at 40% capacity in its leadership structure, or that even worse, that the lack of the 60% of the church's leadership structure has caused the church to function as something other than what Jesus originally intended, and therefore has at times, even for extended periods of time, functioned as some form of religious corporate entity that was not the church of Jesus Christ at all. Now, I say that because I think it's important for the church to know what the church has been. We're supposed to be a light on a hill. That means we're supposed to be transparent. We're not hiding our stuff under a basket. The church, through the ages, has not always been what the church should be, and we realize that. And that is not to say that God has not, through the ages, maintained those faithful few scattered throughout the world who, like the apostles and prophets of old, maintained the true faith even at the hazard of their own lives, often being persecuted, even killed, by the religious structure that claimed to be the Church of Christ, who by a long chain of self-appointed entitlement claimed to be protecting the flock of God, pastoral ministry, and the doctrine of the church, teachers, thus turning these precious servant ministry roles into a laity-abusive guardianship of what they considered to be the purity of the faith which is just religious jargon for protecting their own hierarchical position in order to maintain personal wealth and dominating power. This is what Jesus called the works or teaching of the Nicolaitans. The works or teachings of the Nicolaitans. Two references concerning the Nicolaitans are found in the book of Revelations when the ascended and glorified Christ addresses the church through the seven letters. Revelation 2, 1 through 6, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at the first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this one thing you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Then in Revelation 2, 12 through 15, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So what or who are the Nicolaitans? First, let me point out a similarity in the meaning of the two names mentioned in the verses just quoted. Balaam, a prophet hired by a Moabite king to curse Israel, as they approached the promised land, was continually overcome by the Spirit and could only bless them. So he advised the king to send Moabite women in among the young Hebrew men to seduce them. Balaam means Lord over, Baal, and people, Am. So Balaam means Lord over the people, while Nicolaitan is Greek for Nico victorious over, and Latin, laity, the people, victorious over the people, Lord over the people. That's why Jesus uses this reference back to Balaam. It's the same dynamic. The Nicolaitans were a first century heretical group that was either started by Nicholas the proselyte, who was one of the original deacons, or whose name was used by the group to validate their doctrines of idolatrous practices and sexual immorality, the early church indicates either could be true by early church writings. Nonetheless, the name indicates dominance over the people of God through false doctrine, teaching, and a morally bankrupt lifestyle, pastoral. So what has that all got to do with us? Simply this. The Nicolaitans introduced a very strong pagan influence into early Christianity, an influence that the apostles addressed when making a determination concerning Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and whether or not they should be Judaized in order to become Christian. In other words, the guys would have to be circumcised, they would have to keep all the uh, food laws and all of the feast and all of that, and Paul says, you can't put this on these people. It isn't their world. So they had a council in Jerusalem. And here is their determination. 
in Acts 21.5, but as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. They should restrain from the very thing the Nicolaitans were teaching as doctrine in the church. These are the very works that the Nicolaitans espouse and that Jesus hated. Why? Because the purpose of pagan influence is to put adherents into bondage to the ruling system. Roman paganism took this to the ultimate expression of world dominance. Here's an excerpt from an article published by the Society of Biblical Literature. Julius Caesar was assassinated on Ray Ides of March. Oh, I'm sorry, Ray. I can't help it. Whatever I say, Ides, I've got to put Ray in front of it. I've just known you too long. Sorry. The Ides of March in 44 B.C. <clears throat> when a comet was later visible on July nights, Octavius, the adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar, promoted the idea that it was a sign that the divine Caesar was on his way to heaven. Now, you're going to hear all, all these Christianese built right into this. When Roman law in 42 BC deified Julius Caesar, the status of Octavius, who took the name Augustus, was strengthened by adding the phrase, son of God. Poets celebrated the divinity associated with Augustus, and across the empire, coins, monuments, temples, and artwork promoted the cult of Augustus and other emperors who adopted Caesar as the honorific title. To many in the empire, Roman civilization brought stability and wealth, and the people were urged to have faith in their lord, the emperor, who would preserve peace and increase wealth. In the Roman imperial world, the gospel was the good news of Caesar's having established peace and security for the world. It was written by Richard A. Horsley in Jesus and the Empire. So peace in the world is Pax Romana. Pax Romana, Roman peace. A 200-year period where there were, according to Rome, according to Rome now, no wars in the then known world. But the peace was an enforced peace. In other words, what would have normally been considered war was instead called rebellion and quickly crushed by Roman might. Like in 70 AD, the Jews went to war against Rome. Josephus called it the Jewish war, but Rome called it the Jewish rebellion and slaughtered millions. The Romans crucified 10,000 Jews a day in front of the walls of Jerusalem as they starved the Jews holed up inside to death. Somehow, just somehow, that does not sound like peace to me. But it is very much in line with pagan thought concerning control over the people. With all that in mind, listen to these historical facts. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, 306 to 337 AD, Christianity began to transition to the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. 
Historians remain uncertain about Constantine's reason for favoring Christianity, and theologians and historians have often argued about which form of early Christianity he subscribed to. Some scholars question the extent to which he should be considered a Christian emperor. Constantine saw himself as an emperor of the Christian people. If this made him a Christian, it is the subject of at least debate, although he allegedly received a baptism shortly before his death. Constantine's decision to cease the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire was the turning point of early Christianity, sometimes referred to as the triumph of the church or the peace of the church. Others call it the Constantine shift. That's what I like to call it, the constant, because it was not a triumph. In 313, Constantine and Licinius issued the Edict of Milan decriminalizing Christian worship. The emperor became the great patron of the church and set a precedent for the position of the Christian emperor within the church and the notion of orthodoxy, Christendom, ecumenical councils, and the state church of the Roman Empire declared by an edict in 380 A.D. Now, do you know what that means? Christianity became the state religion for the Roman Empire, and the Roman emperor became head of the Christian church by edict. In other words, if you were a Christian, you had no choice. And with that series of events, all the Roman paganist practices, ideals, and worldviews flooded into Christianity to create a homogenized blend of beliefs and practices that became an emperor-dominated, paganized version of Christianity dominated by the Roman Empire, using the influence of the church to enforce Pax Romano through the use of a hierarchical priesthood to rule over and dominate the lives of the common people. The works, teachings, and practices of the Nicolaitans were now fully installed and functioning in the Roman-sanctioned church. Now, the reason I'm giving you all of this information is to show you how and why the leadership structure of the local church since the Constantinian shift has become so dominantly ruled by pastor-teacher-priesthood model, and how that model has for centuries effectively eliminated the function, input, and stabilizing influence of the office of apostle, prophets, and evangelists in the life of the church and for the benefit of the laity. How bad was it? Consider this. Until the introduction of the printing press, no one except the priests and scholars of the church had a copy of the scriptures. And if you were not a priest or a scholar and caught with a copy of any portion of the Bible, any portion, a single page, you could be burned at the stake or skinned alive by the church. They did not ask you if you read your Bible today. Aren't you grateful you can freely read your Bible today? Mm -hmm. 
And I hope you do daily because it will add so much to your Christian walk. And so many who have come before us paid the ultimate price to free the scriptures from the clutches of the darkness that so dominated the church for so long. So if shepherds and teachers were used by the church in error to dominate and control the laity for personal power and gain, what are the real Jesus-intended functions of these gift offices? I'm going to address these gifts in a combined format. In other words, shepherd-teacher. Shepherd, right-leaning slash teacher. <laughs> For all you users of computers. As opposed to individually. Some believe they are meant to be combined, but I believe they can also function as powerfully as standalone ministries. Like some people, when they read the fivefold gifts, apostle, prophet, evangelist, they go, pastor, teacher, as one, one ministry. I see it as five, so it would be pastor, comma, teacher. Okay. I'll be using the profiles from Alan Hirsch's APEST evaluation to give insight into the attendant influence of these two giftings. And there are slight variances of the application depending on which gifting is dominant in the mix. So is the individual a pastor-teacher or a teacher-pastor? You all have a dominant uh, ability within the gifting of Jesus Christ. So this is a profile for a shepherding teacher. The shepherd or pastor-teacher views the world through a lens of knowledge and understanding. Believing this will lead to healthy relationships. The shepherd teacher is one who cares for others through bringing wisdom and understanding of God and his ways. The shepherd teacher teaches in an emotionally rich and informative manner, creating environments of learning. The shepherd teacher can personally connect through integrating the right information and the motivation of the shepherd-teacher is individual change, and change is informed and inspired. Shepherding leadership influence by nurturing, protecting, and caring for people. Nurturing, protecting, and caring for people. Shepherd leaders' primary function is as the caregivers of individuals. Shepherding leadership is the people-oriented motivator who develops and supports healthy relational systems. In a leader, he or she has the unique ability to know and understand the needs of people and the ability to develop others. Shepherd leaders focus on the needs of today and manage people through meaningful and personal contact. Often the shepherd leader has a unique understanding of others' feelings and emotions, creating a sincere relational bond. He or she will seek to create safe environments for meaning, meaningful spiritual growth and discipleship. A shepherd leader believes in the need to seek to resolve the needs of today at the expense of the focusing on the needs of tomorrow. In other words, if you're present with a good shepherd, you are the most important thing in their world at that moment. They're not wandering off into what's going to happen an hour from now or tomorrow. It's you. That's the heart of a true shepherd. Hmm? He or she is a humanizer. They provide the emotional glue for the caring of individuals within an organization. 
The shepherd leader impacts the community through nurture. The shepherd leader influences others by their deep love, care, and protection of those in their care. Right. Now we're going to flip the profile over to a teaching shepherd. The teacher shepherd believes that communicating wisdom and understanding is a way of deeply caring for others. The teacher shepherd interprets truth through a lens of personal relationships, community, and growth, driven by a need to communicate. This reminds me of someone in the sound booth. <laughs> the teacher shepherd will take the time to know you first, creating a sense of safety in order that learning might take place. The motivation for the teacher shepherd is personal meaning. Therefore, they take the time needed to be sure you understand. The genius of teaching leadership is their ability to reveal and communicate the wisdom of God. Teaching leadership inspires others to learn and obey the truth of Christ's teachings and commands. In a leader, he or she is the one who explains and seeks explanation of the truth. The teacher leader focuses on the integration of truth into the personal and social elements of the community. He or she can be seen as a systematizer, seeking to organize various intellectual and practical parts into the working unity. With this type of understanding, the teacher leader advances a cause through clear and simple communication. Teaching leadership articulates organization and structure to others for the fulfillment of a cause or task. The teacher leader impacts the community through understanding. The teacher leader influences others by clarifying the mind and will of God so people gain wisdom and understanding. I think you would agree that what has just been described in these two profiles looks nothing like the historical accounts I shared earlier because these profiles are more in keeping with the ideals and values of the Good Shepherd, who leads us to green pastures and still waters, as opposed to the bondage and servitude of the Roman system. And Jesus was very aware of our potential, the human potential to want to dominate and control and addresses that with his very own disciples in Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 500 years ago this year, Martin Luther broke with the Roman church, protesting what he saw as the errors and abuses in the church. His goal was reformation. What he started was a rebellion that we call Protestantism, with the emphasis on protest. Luther was a priest in the Roman church, a scholar and a teacher. His protest was launched as a written thesis, as any scholar would do. The 95 Theses, a list of questions and propositions 
for debate. That's how he was thinking. He was a teacher and a scholar. Right? Popular legend has it that on October 31st, 1517, Luther defiantly nailed a copy of his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. There was no debate after that. But because Luther was also a product of the system he protested against, he never addressed the errant structure and function of the church leadership model. And so as Protestantism began to grow and become a religious denominational force, they continued to promote and ordain pastors and teachers as the twofold leadership structure of the church, leaving behind in the dust of historical deception the three other primary gifts of Christ to the church for the unity, growth, and equipping of the laity for the work of ministry. And so the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists were delegated to the first century formative work of the church alone. The result of this has been ministry overload, pastoral burnout, and leadership dominance and exclusivity in the church. A lack of input into the life of the church from the apostolic, prophetic, and evangelistic viewpoint that has produced a weak, ingrown, needs-based church bereft of power and the skills of spiritual warfare, living less than abundant lives in a richly abundant kingdom. In other words, we don't even realize what our potential is because we're only getting two-fifths of what's been offered. And the world sees this as the church's hypocrisy. We need to ask the question, and to ask it loud, where are the apostles? Where are the prophets? Where are the evangelists of the church? And I believe that as we begin to ask this question in sincerity, with a desire to honor the gifts that Jesus has bequeathed to the church, we will discover, because he will reveal, that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and yes, even the pastors and the teachers are right here in our midst. They, any one of them, could be you or me. Your son or your daughter. The person next to you or who has only recently walked through our doors to become part of our community. Because the reason Jesus gave us these most precious gifts in the form of these wonderfully gifted individuals is so that all of us, the body of Christ could all do the work of ministry in unity, in maturity, in power, and in love. So Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.11, speaking about Jesus, who has he ascended back to the Father, he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, to equip the saints, not to dominate over the saints, not to run the church, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain 
to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We ought to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, every one of you matters to God's plan for this community. When each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you ever wonder who you are in Christ? Could God have a purpose for you? I don't even think that's a legitimate question anymore. Of course he has a purpose for you. I think the question needs to transition is, Lord, what is your purpose for me? What is it you want me to do? I keep getting this recurring phrase from uh, a song that was real popular when we were still downtown from Robin Mark. These are the days of Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. There's a lot going on in the world around us and in the church. Battle lines are being drawn. Evil is becoming more evil. Light is becoming more bright. It's time to take the baskets off our heads and start to shine. So I'm going to do something. This is probably going to scare half of the Sockham students to death. <laughs> so all you Sockham students, I want you to come up front here. 